0: Welcome to Taking the Party Out of Politics. This is a podcast about understanding how politics is supposed to work, why it isn't working, as well as it should be working, and what we might be able to do about it. Because by understanding a little bit more clearly how things are supposed to work and why they're a bit messed up, we might be able to get things to work a bit better, perhaps even a lot better. This is a little journey which we're taking together about the systems and functioning of politics. Systems which we should all understand, because those systems affect all of our lives, all of the time. And this podcast is about how we might be able to make those systems work a bit better. In Season 1, we took a look at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of us, the voters. This is Season 2 in which we're looking at how government is supposed to work from the perspective of someone trying to get elected and then trying to do a good job. Looking ahead in Season 3, we'll be looking at what we might be able to do to make things work a bit better. Importantly, when we get to Season 3, we'll be sharing our ideas, but also sharing some of the best of your ideas about how to make things work a bit better. Today, we're going to have a look at Ministers and Safe Seats. Specifically, what sort of power ministers of state actually have, what sort of differences they can make to our laws, and how those laws are applied, and also just whether very many of them are elected in anything approaching a process of real democratic representation. So far, the process isn't working properly for MPs. In season one, We looked at how hard it is for voters to make the electoral system work properly so that the people whom we elect are likely to be good representatives representing us, representing our needs and our preferences. And so far in season two we've looked at how hard it is for a new MP to get elected, how hard it is for a new MP to work out how to be effective once they are elected, and then how the systems within parliament mean that Much of their work is then controlled by the party whips or bullied into line by ministers or simply bypassed by having secondary legislation slipped into bills at the last minute, for example. It's difficult to get elected. And then once you are elected, it's difficult to achieve much. You're overworked and you're expected to just go with the flow. When we look at ministers, the situation looks even more unbalanced. And this is really important because... Ministers actually have a lot of power, and what they decide can really affect what happens. First of all, what do we mean when we use the word Minister? Well, you've probably heard the term Secretary of State, such as the Secretary of State for Defence or the Secretary of State for Education. Well, the Secretary of State for Education is the Minister for Education. Whilst the Prime Minister is responsible for the government as a whole, the rest of the people who are appointed to the Cabinet, the rest of the government, Well, they all take on specialist bits of the work of government. Each minister is responsible for a different part of the jigsaw of all the things that government does. We've already mentioned in the last episode that ministers are very often in a hurry. Well, they're in a hurry because the average tenure for a minister, the average amount of time they spend in office, is only about 18 months. As a newly appointed minister, the next 18 months, or maybe less, might be the one Opportunity to make a real difference, to actually do something in a whole political career. From a human perspective, it makes complete sense that a minister would want to make the most of what might be their only opportunity. The result, however, is that ministers are very often in a hurry to ensure that they make that impact, and, as they say, marry in haste, repent at leisure. Things which are rushed are rarely as well thought through as things which we have considered fully. In the last episode, we touched on part of this. The Minister's rush might mean that they'd be very keen to push their new ideas through Parliament, to push them through the committee stages, the very stages which are supposed to be casting a constructively critical eye over the plans to check that they're likely to work. There's also another whole area here. The rush to get things into place not only risks not allowing MPs to offer some constructive criticism, It also means that not everyone is fully consulted. Well, obviously you can't consult absolutely everyone, but you can certainly consult people and organisations who are typical of the people and organisations who are going to be affected by a new law. But very, very often there isn't sufficient consultation. And this can lead to some serious blunders where new laws are put into place, but they are laws which haven't been properly thought through even if they are laws which are supposed to be achieving things which we would all want, and that isn't always the case. Far too often, they turn out to be laws which either don't achieve what they're supposed to, or possibly even make things worse. We'll come back to the detail of this in The Blunders of Our Government, a later episode. I will just say that we use the word blunders here to mean something which doesn't just happen to be a mistake in retrospect. A blunder is something which most people, at least most people other than the Minister and their immediate team, something which most people could have told you in advance wasn't a good idea. And very often, these are the people who should have been listened to, who should have been consulted before the new law was brought into practice. For now, let's just remember that rushing stuff isn't a good idea when you're building a house. It isn't a good idea when you're doing your homework. And it isn't a good idea when you're bringing in new laws, particularly if those new laws are going to change the way in which part of the country works or how some people end up interacting with other people. Anyway, as I said, we'll come back to the blunders of our governments in a later episode. For now, let's get back to the process by which ministers end up as ministers, because it isn't really a good example of democratic representation. And that's within a field where we've already said that the system doesn't work. And that only a very special sort of person can afford to stand for election. And only a very special subgroup of those special sort of people is going to want to stand for election. With all the sacrifices which they'll have to make and with all the abuse and hassle which they will get. Even within that field, ministers aren't really good examples of democratic representation. Only some MPs become ministers. Now, first of all, let's think about what we've already said about the way in which being an MP is hard. That was a couple of episodes ago, but one of the things we've observed was that the system ends up encouraging our MPs either to give up, or to keep their head down and to coast, or to be such a good party animal, to be so loyal to their party that their party decides to give them some more responsibility. Now, as we said then, none of these is good enough. None of these is really giving us the MPs who are getting stuck in, representing us, representing our needs and our preferences. What it is giving us is either people who aren't getting stuck in, or people who are only getting stuck in in the direction in which their party wants them to get stuck in. So what is the result going to be of all of this? Well, just in terms of what sort of MPs actually get to be ministers, it's not going to be the independent-minded ones. It's not going to be the ones who stick up for their constituency, no matter what. It's going to be the ones who stick up for their party, no matter what. Hmm, well that doesn't sound good, does it? No, it certainly doesn't. But then, is that really important? I mean, the ministers are there just to advise the Prime Minister, aren't they? Do the ministers really have much power? Well, let's look at that idea. Ministers can wield a lot of power in a small area. We might think that the Prime Minister is the centre of power, but the Prime Minister actually spends quite a lot of time managing the different interest groups within the party and perhaps dealing with high-level, often international meetings. Ministers, meanwhile, can focus on their departments and what they can get up to can seriously affect our day-to-day lives. Whilst we might think that the Prime Minister has all the power, After all, it's the Prime Minister who gets to go to all the big international conferences and the Prime Minister who gets to act all, well, Prime Ministerial. But the details of the new laws which are brought in? The general ideas of new laws in a particular ministry – education, defence, digital, culture, media and sport, etc. They might be discussed in Cabinet with the Prime Minister and other ministers. Briefly, because they're all just part of the overall business of the whole government. But the details of the new laws – Are handled by each department, by each government ministry, and that falls under the control of the minister. And again, what ministers can get up to can seriously affect our day to day lives. Let's talk about safe seats. Most, not all, but most ministers represent what are known as safe seats. This isn't a partisan statement, it applies to most ministers of all parties. In a safe seat, almost anyone would be elected, as long as they were wearing the appropriate coloured rosette. In fact, though we hear a lot about political parties, membership of political parties is actually a bit of a niche activity. If you want all the numbers, then please have a look at the transcript for this episode on our website, www.talktogether.info. For now, I'll just give you the headline figure, not the details for the membership of each political party separately. The total membership of political parties in the UK is about three quarters of a million people. Just to put that into some sort of context, the membership of the Royal Society for the Protection of Birds is just over one million people. Now birds are lovely, birds are important, but so is deciding on national policy. Isn't it quite telling that more people are members of the RSPB than of all national political parties combined? So there aren't actually that many people who are members of political parties. But the people who select the candidate for the safe seat are the local party members. In fact, it's very often quite a small subset of local party members, the ones who regularly attend the local party meetings, for example, or the ones who were available to attend on the day when the candidate was selected. All of which means that it's, depending on which party gets to form the government, and given that we're only talking about the 26 key people who get to be ministers, well, it's only about 1,000 people across the whole country, who get to select the people who will be the candidates in those seats, where they're going to get elected, it's only about a thousand people who select the people who will be the most influential over our lives, the ministers. Now, if you add that to the fact that each elected representative has more of the votes in their constituency than any other candidate did, but not necessarily a majority, And the party which gets to form the government has a majority of elected representatives, but not necessarily a majority of the votes cast. And now our ministers, who will have a huge impact over our day-to-day lives, are actually selected by something like 1,000 party members in their constituencies. That's 1,000 party members across the whole country, not in each constituency. Well, it looks as though our representative democracy isn't very representative of us at all. So that's as bad as it can get, right? I'm afraid not. Just wait until we have a look at what actually happens when ministers and governments get to work. Next, though, we should look at the other side of the coin we've been examining. We've just looked at the process of selecting the MPs who become ministers. Let's take a look at the pool from which MPs and, of course, ministers are selected. It's called the political class. Now, this is a point we've touched on, but really only in passing, when we talked about the challenges of becoming an MP. Let's look a little further under the bonnet of the idea of our MPs actually all coming from what we could even call a political class. Strangely, a system which is supposed to elect representatives of the people ends up selecting from a pretty limited pool. Now, don't misunderstand. Many MPs and other political representatives go into politics for the right reasons, and they do many good things. Scrutinising the operations of the civil service and pretty much everything else is excellent, and they are often good local MPs, listening to their constituents and doing what they can to help. All that sort of stuff is great. It's the other stuff which is a matter for concern. The big stuff. The major policy stuff. It's not just the fact that Ministers, the people who make most of the decisions which actually affect us, are selected in safe seats. The fact is that most of our politicians are selected from a pretty limited choice, to which we then add the fact that Ministers are especially selected even more restricted choice within that starting point of our MPs being selected from a pretty limited choice of the overall population. Now let's unpick that a bit more. We don't need to go through all the challenges facing someone trying to get elected for the first time as an MP. If you want more about that, please listen to the episode, Becoming an MP. But for now, let's just say that the nature of a political career, examined minutely by an aggressive media, requiring a certain type of person to put up with the ridicule and endless, often thankless, demands for the impossible, being prepared and able to take the risks and to face the challenges of standing for election, well all that means that only certain types of people are prepared to do it. It's actually pretty great that there are any people who are prepared to put up with all the difficulties and challenges, and who are prepared to take the financial and personal risk involved, as we discussed earlier. Most of us wouldn't be able to do that, but it's a shame that our choice of representatives ends up being between only the sort of people who are prepared to make that sort of choice, that sort of sacrifice. To represent people, you have to live a life among them. You have to understand the pressures, challenges, opportunities and hopes which people have every day. Westminster, or even the local town hall or county council, it's not everyone's world. If that's your main experience, how can you hope to represent everyone else properly? Perhaps it would be better if we were able to have people who were prepared to put in five or ten years of their lives, perhaps standing for one or two terms only, and then standing down. People who would bring with them expertise of a range of different working fields. People who were doing it a bit like VSO, Volunteer Service Overseas, because it's the right thing to do for a bit. Not just people who had no other career than politics. There are too many people who have not had a full, rounded life themselves, living only in the nether regions of electoral politics, party machinery and the so-called Westminster village. Now, if your instinct is to disagree with me, Then you might just be putting all of this down to my mad ravings. But I'm afraid you'd be totally wrong to do so. If all of the things I already told you about how the system doesn't work in practice, well let me offer a little bit of political theory to back it up with. Mosca, the ruling elite. The idea of a ruling elite, a political class, originally comes from political scientists such as Gaetano Mosca, and was further developed by Vilfredo Pareto. The idea is that members of a small minority from common backgrounds, hold most of the positions of power in a society. Now, these are not just political positions, but also include positions on corporate boards or people who have influence over policy through their financial support of things like think tanks. The ruling elite have common interests, and by keeping power concentrated in their hands, they maintain the powerlessness of non-elites. It's a sort of ultimate them in the sense of us and them. Now, that is absolutely not to say that all our MPs are part of some secret society which is covertly running the world from behind the scenes. But it is true. But it is true that our MPs all have some things in common with each other. Things which most everyone else doesn't have. Things like the willingness to put up with the hassle of standing for election and the media scrutiny. To put in the groundwork with political parties, perhaps over many years, to get selected as a party candidate to be able to take the personal risk involved. They may not be secretly running the world in cahoots with CEOs of multinational companies, well, not all of them anyway, but they are all a distinct type of person who is prepared to put up with all of that. They are members of a political class. Now, let's just note quickly the pressures of living a life under public or rather under media scrutiny. We'll come back to talking more about the media in a later episode, but let's just make a quick note here. The additional pressures of media expectations means that it seems it's only an entirely consistent life which makes it possible for someone to pass scrutiny by tabloid. Do we actually want our representatives to be people who always say the same thing about every issue, rather than realizing that sometimes situations change and that we might be right to change our point of view in the light of new information or new perspectives. Is that what we actually want? A system where only the most thick-skinned, where only the most dogged, unchanging and persistent stand up to represent us? No. We need people with real experience of the world and of how things really work. Otherwise we end up with a government which doesn't really know how to function. And we'll get to the heart of that in about four episodes' time, when we talk about the blunders of our governments. For now, what have we learned about ministers? Our MPs are a special bunch of people. They have to be to put up with everything which goes with standing to become an MP, and then being an MP. On the whole, even if they don't think that they do, most of our MPs come from what we can think of as a political class, a sort of special social class of people who are able to do the job, who are Able to take the risks associated with trying to do the job, and who are prepared to put up with the challenges and abuse which goes with doing the job. On top of that, only some MPs really toe the party line sufficiently well that their political party is prepared to select them for some additional responsibility. Only some MPs become ministers. It turns out that those ministers trusted members of their political party very often, not always, but very often very often represent safe seats. A safe seat is where anyone wearing the right colour rosette, representing what is the right political party for that constituency, anyone wearing the right colour rosette would get elected. It may be that they've become trusted members of the party because they've been around so long because they happen to be in a safe seat. Or it may be that they've been parachuted into that safe seat because they're already a trusted member of that political party. For example, as we saw with Boris Johnson, after his time as Mayor of London, when the Conservative Party found him a safe seat in Uxbridge, because the seat where he had previously been an MP, Henley, already had another trusted member of the Conservative Party. What that means is that it's the people who choose the candidate for that safe seat who are, in practice, even if they don't realise it at the time, they are the ones who are selecting our ministers. And that means, in total, for 26 ministers, only about 1,000 people across the whole country are the ones who are selecting the MPs who are going to end up being our ministers. Not good in terms of democratic representation, eh? Not good at all. And those ministers are the ones who are going to be planning the details of the new laws and pushing the new laws through Parliament and through the parliamentary committees. Committees which are supposed to be taking their time looking at the details thinking about whether they're good laws, thinking about whether they're laws which are doing the sorts of things which we actually want. If those committees, and if Parliament itself, aren't given the time and the information and the independence from pressures from ministers and from party whips, aren't given the independence to do a good job, then the system which is supposed to give us good laws to improve the way the country works and to improve our lives Well, that system is just not up to the job. Unless, of course, you have some different ideas. Some suggestions as to how things could be different. Perhaps about how we could use our systems differently. Or about how we could tweak them so they worked better, in all of our interests. If you have any ideas, we would love to hear from you. In Season 3 of Taking the Party Out of Politics, we'll be exploring various ideas about how we could make things better, and we would love to hear from you. Just email us with your ideas on info at talktogether.info. If your ideas are good, or if they help us to understand things more clearly, then we will include them in Season 3. We might even contact you to interview you about your suggestions. We look forward to hearing your thoughts. Next time, we're going to look a bit more at the problems of media expectations. Because just when you thought you'd got your head around all of the challenges, there's another whole layer of problems. For now, thank you for listening. If you'd like to have a look at the transcripts of this podcast, including the links to all our sources and references, please go to www.talktogether.info and follow the links to the podcast from there. And of course, if you'd like to contact us, not least if you'd like to share any ideas which you have about how we could make things better, or if there are any areas of how politics is supposed to work, but why it isn't working, then please email us at any time on info at info. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then I hope you'll take the time to tell your friends. And perhaps you could also take a moment to give us a rating wherever you found us. That not only helps other people to find us, it just always makes us feel really appreciated. That would be great. Thank you.